Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to another edition of the Hank Unplugged podcast, which is a podcast that is designed to bring the most interesting, informative, and inspirational people directly to your earbuds. It's a podcast that I think has really fulfilled that particular mission statement. Some of the guests that I've had on the podcast tell me that I looked at the list of people that you've had on this podcast, and I was excited to be on that podcast for that very reason. So we've had a lot of great response to the podcast. And by the way, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review. That helps a lot. Today, we want to talk about wisdom. Solomon said something about wisdom, which has always stuck in my mind. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom? And the man who gains understanding for its profit is better than the profit of silver, and its gain than fine gold. She's more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. So you think about the importance of wisdom, and all of a sudden, my son gives me a book which deals with that very thing. In fact, on the front cover of the book is the Wisdom Pyramid. And we often have that Wisdom Pyramid inverted. And a person that wrote about this eloquently in this book is Brett McCracken. He's senior editor and director of communications for the Gospel Coalition. He's written for the Wall Street Journal, which I read every day, the Washington Post, which I do not, Christianity Today, and many other publications, and he has authored several books, including the book that's in focus today, The Wisdom Pyramid, the subtitle, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. I am absolutely delighted, Brett, to have you on my podcast after reading the book. Thank you, Hank. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you. I want to talk about this idea of wisdom in an age of information overload. One of the points you make is that we have information overload, but we have lost the ability to discern. And we really have knowledge 
as an end in itself, as opposed to wisdom being the application of that knowledge. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the kind of paradox that I initially kind of was the catalyst for wanting to write this book was the observation of we live in this information age where we've never had more access to knowledge and information in human history. You know, every question you could have is a Google search away. The entire like written history of human civilization is now on your smartphone, essentially. So we're not lacking for knowledge or information, but I don't think anyone would look around at the world today and observe that we've reached this pinnacle of wisdom as a culture. So and if, if anything, I think wisdom has been degraded and is suffering in the age of information. And I think part of that is the overload of information and, and maybe confusing having access to knowledge and information as enough. So I just, I see that in my own world. I work as a digital, you know, journalist for the website of the Gospel Coalition. So I spend a lot of time in the, the internet space and I just see, you know, you don't have to go far on social media to see how foolishness abounds in today's world and wisdom is lacking even among Christians. So I really wanted to explore what does it look like to recover wisdom in the digital age as Christians and through Christians, the culture at large, hopefully will also discover wisdom as well. Brett, talk about the necessity for contemplation. I so often use the example of watching a television show and maybe it's a newscast and you have mm. this incredibly profound subject that's being dealt with. Could be starvation or whatever it happens to be. And then there's a commercial. And yeah. you never really have the opportunity to contemplate, you know, so yeah. you have profound information and then a soap commercial. Yeah. I mean, I quote Neil Postman quite a lot in the book, who is a media theorist who was very prophetic in what he was writing about in books like Amusing Ourselves to Death back in the 80s. And he talks about that very thing in the age of television, which is what he was writing about in the 80s. It was this constant stream of now this, and then this, and this consequential news event next to a weather report, next to a human interest story, you know, next to genocide in Africa. And all these things of varying degrees of consequence and importance are coming at us in this steady stream of content in a way that is too fast for our brains and our souls to kind of properly digest. And if that was true back in the 80s when Postman was first writing about it, you know, how much more so is it true in the age of Twitter when we're, everyone is just constantly scrolling through content and things are coming at us at this rapid fire pace and we don't ever take the time to be unmediated long enough to let things digest and synthesize uh, to, to be critical thinkers about what we just saw on our phones, about whether it's a news story. You know, this is why, and we can talk more about this, but this is why fake news and kind of people being duped is happening more and more. It's this phenomenon of the, the speed and the glut of information means there's very little space left for people to exercise discernment, critical thinking, synthesis, connecting the dots a little bit, asking, you know, probing questions about you know, what is the source of this headline that I'm reading? Is it a valid source? Fact checking, the things like that. We just go too fast for that. And the media industry is kind of incentivized to go fast, to fill us, you know, in this binge kind of fast food buffet diet of 
information so that we're hooked so that we're just like we're all just glued to our screens constantly and when we're constantly mediated wisdom suffers i think that i think we're all seeing that so you know one of the things i say in the book is quoting this book the common rule by justin early he says something like you know staring at a blank wall is infinitely better for your wisdom than digesting content constantly you know even if it's good content even if it's like a really thoughtful podcast, you know, with Hank Hanegraaff and, you know, Augustine's City of God and some other, even if it's really meaty content, if we're just filling ourselves in this binging kind of diet, never giving our system time to synthesize it and process it properly, then it's not worthwhile. And so we need to create space for that. Contemplation is huge in the wisdom tradition and in the faith tradition. And so that's that the lost art in today's world and for today's Christians who, even when they're well-intentioned to kind of fill themselves up with good content, like this podcast here, this book here, you know, this, 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 like too much of a good thing is still a bad thing if it means you're not making space to digest it all. Yeah, we'll get into this more when we get into the wisdom pyramid itself. But one of the antidotes, as you point out, is learning to read. Because reading gives you an opportunity to digest, to assimilate information more slowly, as opposed to on this breakneck speed. Yeah, that's why books, you know, are pretty prominent in the wisdom pyramid, not only, you know, for the content that you will glean from books, but really for the muscle that reading is developing, you know, which is that muscle of discernment and processing that is kind of atrophying a little bit in the digital age. And there's science that is showing this, right? People are literally, our brains are losing the ability to read in a focused, sustained way. And that makes sense, you know, if the younger generation is growing up in this TikTok world where content is just like five seconds of this, five seconds of that, of course their brains are going to struggle to process information in the way that a book requires which is a focused kind of deep dive into one idea, one author's perspective for a sustained period of time. But I mean, I just think that if, if we lose the ability to read as a culture, then what do we do with the Bible? You know, God's revelation to us, like, what do we do with the great books, you know, that have been written by our forebears that are so packed with wisdom. So that muscle of like learning to read well is so essential in the development of wisdom. Yeah, and I think the latest statistic I read is that more than a quarter of the population has not even read one single book yeah. in the last year. So reading has become a lost <laughs> art. In your book, you talk about chronological snobbery, and you talk about a very interesting statement, perpetual novelty, perpetual presentism. We so often in our age have come to the place where we think if it's new, it's better. So rather than perpetuation, it's constant innovation. Chronological snobbery is a big problem. It is. It's a huge problem. And, you know, I, I think that Christians have perpetuated it. Evangelicals, you know, in the modern era have kind of bought into this idea that new is good and reinvention is a necessity. You know, there's this sense, you know, I'm in California. That's where I go to church. It's where I live. And California is notorious for this kind of disregard for the past, a focus on innovation always, and 
lots of you know Christian things have originated here, whether like the mega church type idea or the Jesus people movement or whatever. And so I see it. I see it in my own context. And there's this kind of obsession with novelty. And of course, Hollywood and the entertainment industry and the fashion world perpetuate this as well. It's what I wrote about in my first book, Hipster Christianity, which was a critique of this kind of novelty obsession, this relevance obsession that the church has kind of bought into following the consumer culture, which is that in order to make an impact missionally, we have to kind of seize the zeitgeist of the moment in the way that Nike or some fashion brand does. We have to contextualize to the zeitgeist now and follow the trends in order to like reach the young people. That's the assumption. But it couldn't be more wrongheaded, I think, because, you know, when you're constantly chasing the trends, which are ever more ephemeral, they're becoming more and more disposable. In the age of TikTok, things are like, you know, here and gone in a nanosecond. It's a fool's errand for anything as significant and substantive as Christianity to attach itself to kind of this presentist ephemeral focus when we have this great wealth of history and church fathers and wisdom of ages past to draw from, it's just, yeah, it, to me, it's just a really missed opportunity to kind of follow the culture in this focusing on the now to be relevant kind of posture. So it's terrible for wisdom for anyone, any human, but for the church and our call in the world, I think it's a really bad misjudgment. Brett, talk to the danger of being a digital wanderer, as you put it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the structure of these, the internet, specifically social media feeds, is kind of like it plays into our human tendency by our fallen nature, I think, to be distractible and fidgety. And we're never content, right, with what we have. We're always like, you know, we see something off in the corner of our periphery. And that's attractive and that's interesting. So we forget where we're going in life and we wander off the path. And that's what the social media experience is, right? Very few people go onto their Twitter app or Facebook or Instagram with like a specific purpose or intention. Instead, they're digital wanderers going wherever the algorithm calls out to them the loudest. Whatever the algorithm presents that's the flashiest, the most seductive, that's what people are going to watch or click on. And the algorithms are so sophisticated. That's the scary thing about this technology is they're becoming more and more sophisticated at knowing exactly what each individual consumer has kind of a sweet spot for. What are their proclivities? What are they most tempted by? And so the algorithms are kind of the forbidden fruit of the technological era. They're like, here, take this, take a bite of this thing. It's good for you, right? You've clicked on things like this before. So I know that you like this. And in the book, I make the comparison of drawing from the book of Proverbs and the imagery throughout Proverbs of Lady Folly. And there's this kind of idea that, you know, wisdom is staying on the path and kind of pursuing the path of righteousness. And that speaks to intention and kind of having your gaze set on this path But Lady Folly is this character who's often like sitting off on the periphery on her doorstep calling out, you know, come here, come taste what I have. I have some sweet things for you. You know, you want to like take a little break from your intentional walk and come over and hang out with me. 
The algorithms are the lady folly of our day. They're calling out to each of us all day, every day to be wanderers, to not be intentional in any one direction, but to be susceptible to the kind of whims of novelty acts, basically, and kind of little snippets of entertainment that are always beckoning for our attention. So it's super dangerous to be a a wanderer, (laughs) I think, in life in general. I mean, we can talk about some good instances where making space for exploration is good. But in terms of the internet, I think very little positive results when you kind of open your phone or go on Google without any intention and you're just kind of like killing time. And that rarely ends well. You click on one thing and then you click on something else. And then one thing leads to another and an hour has passed and you're like, what did I do with my hour? (laughs) And I ended up in this, you know, unseemly corner of the internet. And that's what's happening all over the place. There's another dark side to algorithms in that the tech companies can really lead you in a particular political direction as well. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even mention the political side, but that's a huge problem. And the way that our society is becoming more hyper-partisan in the last decade or so, I think you can, there's a lot of kind of contributing factors to that, but I think the social media kind of environment of algorithms, which tend to kind of create echo chambers where people, their views become more and more entrenched because they're only seeing things that reinforce their views. And they're becoming more and more extreme because Facebook is happy to kind of put something on your Facebook feed that is the most extreme example of either your side or something terrible that the other side has done. So yeah, the political fallout from the age of the algorithm is something I think we're just beginning to see the effects of. You mentioned the vulnerability we have to fake news. And one of the examples you give in the book is the Jesse Smollett situation, but there are many other situations like that. I think about Bubba Wallace, and we pounce on information immediately, and then if it fits our particular narrative, we disseminate that information broadly, as opposed to doing things more slowly, doing the kind of investigative journalism that used to be part and parcel of the media within the country. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, there we could do a whole podcast on the state of journalism today and how, you know, it's not seeing its best days, I think. But yeah, because the speed of the internet is what it is. And because journalistic entities are now kind of beholden to the laws of the speed of the internet, like you have to go fast. If, if you're the New York Times, you're competing with, you know, all of these many other content providers for people's attention. And the algorithms reward the kind of fast, hot takes. Consumers tend to gravitate towards those. So the incentives, if you're the New York Times or Fox News on the other kind of extreme, the incentive is speed. That's where the money is. That's where the clicks are. That's where the eyeballs are. But like you just said, Hank, (laughs) the reporting is not going to be as good as it could be if speed is the ultimate priority, because every story, you know, could use a little bit more time to develop a little bit more fact checking, a little bit more care in making sure the full context is known and reported. But the incentive isn't there to go slow. The incentives are all for the speed. 
And this is why, you know, you can even have the New York Times, which positions itself as the gold standard of journalistic integrity. Even they were like perpetuating the Jesse Smollett case. They were reporting that story in in a narrative sort of fashion that ended up, you know, being completely false. And so we're in a dangerous place as a society when even the most trusted sources of news are not reliable anymore by virtue of this speedy dynamic that goes faster than prudence would require for like a good, healthy report. So yeah, it's troubling to me. I mean, this is why if you look at Gallup's survey of like public trust in major institutions, like trust has gone down for every institution, but the news media is like the lowest rated of all the institutions in terms of like declining trust. Well, people just don't trust the news anymore. And so if we've come to a place like that, where no one really trusts that what is being reported is valid, and it's all just narrative, you know, on one side or the other, then of course, we're in a post-truth crisis, you know? So that's where we're at. What about the democratization of information? Mm as like a positive side, perhaps, or? Well, I mean, it has a very negative side as well, because what you wrongly construe in your mind is that all that information is equal in terms of value and weight. And it's hard for people to discern between wheat and chaff and heat and light when you have this democratization of information. Yeah, you know, in the early days of the internet, for those of us who, you know, can remember the arrival of the internet, that was kind of the great, <laughs> right? The World Wide Web was positioned as this kind of democratization of information. No longer is information going to be filtered through the gatekeepers of just a handful of you know powerful people or media companies. And to some extent, I think that has been true because the internet gives real estate for any and all perspectives, even those that you know, Rupert Murdoch disagrees with or George Soros disagrees with. They don't hold the keys to the kingdom necessarily anymore. Anyone has a voice. But the problem with that is that now that we were in this kind of all ideas are equal place where because every voice has a seat at the table and there's no referee, you know, who's kind of looking at all of the perspectives and saying this one is valid, this one is not, we tend to just kind of gravitate towards the voices that we already agree with and that we want to be true. And sometimes we are so overwhelmed with the polyphony of voices that are contradicting one another that we just default to our own voice. You know, that is what I see happening a lot is, you know, I can't trust anything on the internet anymore. So I'm just going to kind of go with my gut and whatever my instincts are, you know, it's the most reliable perspective so this is why you have things like the death of expertise. You know, there's Tom Nichols wrote that book a few years ago, chronicling this kind of death of the idea of experts. So that, you know, someone who has a PhD in, you know, virology during the pandemic, their opinion is on equal footing to like some, you know, uneducated person who has their own opinion about what COVID is and how to handle it. So the pandemic, I think, in a lot of ways, <laughs> revealed a lot of these dynamics in terms of our epistemological crisis that we're in, where no longer do we trust the media because we suspect that they have a narrative that they want to advance. 
no longer do we trust the experts who supposedly are the ones who understand things like pandemics. And for good reason, we're skeptical, right? (laughs) Because again, with the pandemic example, I think a lot of the experts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. They also fell into the speed dynamic, right? Of like information has to like get out there as fast as possible. And so you had a lot of experts like making very confident assertions about COVID too fast, right? Before we knew what it was. And so when a narrative isn't sufficiently vetted for accuracy and it just kind of takes off, it's hard to rein it back in, right? And so even if later on the story is turns out to be more complex or the data goes against what was originally thought, the nature of the media environment that we're in, like no one ever revisits the past. Like the ship has sailed. The narrative has been entrenched, you know, even with things like, I don't know if I mentioned this example in the book, but do you remember the Pulse nightclub shooting? I do very much in Orlando. I think it was. It's kind of like a Jesse Smollett type story. When that event happened, the narrative that the media kind of ran with was that this was a homophobic terrorist attack because it was a gay nightclub. Right. And I think if you ask the average person today, however many years later it has been, they would probably all like say, yeah, it was like a anti-gay like shooting, right? Like that's what it was. But a few years after the event, when they had the trial for the guy, you know, and there were witnesses and I think his girlfriend was a witness, like it became clear that that wasn't his motivation at all. It was kind of like a random target that he just showed up because it was a nightclub. And apparently when he entered, you know, and started shooting, he asked someone like, where are all the girls? Like, you know, he was confused. And so the reality of that story turned out to be very different than the narrative that the media advanced, but the media never like issued a kind of correction three years later you know, just for the public's general knowledge, we got it wrong in that first narrative. Like that wasn't exactly how that event unfolded. And so that's what I mean by like, there's no going back when a narrative is unleashed because we just move on too quickly in our culture. Like who can remember the news last month, you know, (laughs) let alone like last week. That's the cycle of things is just so fast that We never revisit things. As you were speaking, I was thinking about the tension between reality and the self. And you're talking about speed. Well, now we have suddenly, in a very short period of time, developed a brand new narrative or ideology in which we've decoupled biological sex from gender And that has had huge ramifications with young children having top and bottom surgeries and the emergence of a trillion dollar industry where people that start the hormone treatments, they become patients for life and so forth. So that has happened so fast. I mean, if you go back 10 years ago, you think, wow, this is impossible that this would ever happen in America. And yet it's happened with vast rapidity. Part of that, as you identify, is the tension between reality and the self. Yeah. 
yeah. the tension between feelings and reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like chapter three of the book where I talk about this kind of orientation of information and knowledge around the self and how, as we've talked about already, algorithms are kind of feeding that even more. Each of us lives in a little bubble of our own kind of perceived reality of the world where we're constantly being fed more of what we already believe. Now, the algorithms didn't invent that tendency, right? Humans, since the Garden of Eden, have had this proclivity to kind of want to look to ourselves as the standard of truth versus some external standard of truth. So that's as old as time, really, that tendency. But over the last few centuries, you know, the shift in epistemology has been pretty decisively away from anything external to the self holding sway in terms of what reality is to more and more, it's the individual's prerogative. Like I determine what reality is. The enlightenment kind of was where that really began with people like Descartes, you know, I think therefore I am like, I am the standard of knowledge. And so, but yeah, now we've gotten to this point, it's so far down that trajectory that, you know, you have slogans that people say, like, live your truth that are just taken as like, of course, yeah, you live your truth. I live my truth. You do you. And so it's just taken for granted that, yeah, like reality is something that each of us can make however we like it. And so that's where something as wild as transgenderism has taken root in our culture because the premise underneath transgenderism is this idea that reality is each of ours to construe as we feel it to be true. We go with our gut again in a world where we don't trust much external to ourselves, going with our gut and trusting ourselves, following our heart. That's the logical default. And so if my heart is telling me that I'm a woman in a man's body, then you know, the logic of that is widespread in our culture, that that's valid, that we can be whatever we construe ourselves to be. And I think there's connections here with the disembodied kind of nature of the digital age. Um, I talk about this a little bit in the book. I think it's interesting that transgenderism as an idea has really accelerated in the last 20 years. And what has been new in the world in the last 20 years the internet and this way of living our lives that is increasingly disconnected from our physical reality, hmm. where most of us are living a lot of our days through screens, you know, on social media with an avatar version of ourselves. We have less and less experiences of relationships of other people that are physical based relationships, right? They're digital mm -hmm. kind of ethereal relationships. And so if that's the world that we're living in, where there's an increasing disconnect between who I present myself to be online and who I am physically here in my little office looking at a computer screen, then it's not that big of a jump to then have this disconnect between my gender that I identify as and whatever my biological body happens to suggest. Because we're already in this virtual world where it's completely normal to present yourself however you like. And to edit your Instagram photo, to crop it in just the right way to kind of advance a narrative that you want to be true of yourself, even if it has very little connection to the actual reality of your physical embodied life, that's normal in the virtual world that we live in. We're all kind of, you know, manipulating reality 
to our liking. So there's a documentary that I wrote about recently at the Gospel Coalition about Monty Teo. Did you you just happen to see that? I have not seen that. So it's, I won't go into it, but it's an interesting documentary because it's about the fake girlfriend hoax that Monty Teo, a Notre Dame football player. Oh, yes, yes, yes. He like, he basically had this relationship with a girlfriend who he never met in person. And for like, for years, they maintained this relationship, but they never met in person, which that alone is bizarre and yet kind of normal in our world today where online dating and online relationships have become normative. But with this particular story, it turns out that his girlfriend wasn't real. It was a fictitious online creation that a man was actually behind. And the man who was presenting as Monty Teo's girlfriend, interestingly, he has now become a transgender woman. Hmm. So there's all sorts of connections that I think we can make in our cultural moment between what's happening on the gender front and human anthropology being so confused and technology and the internet and how when we live in a more and more disembodied space, we lose wisdom because there's wisdom in the body, right? That's the point that I hammer home throughout my book is the physical world is rife with wisdom, whether we're talking about nature and science, biology, the body, this isn't just, you know, random mass. This is, it has a design, it has a purpose that is full of wisdom and truth that we can kind of learn from. And in a world that is increasingly Gnostic in terms of living a disembodied life online where physical reality is incidental to who we are, that's an unwise world. That's a world becoming further and further removed from wisdom. One of the things I like about your book is that you do a wonderful, even a brilliant job of presenting the problem. And then you present the solution, and the solution is found in the wisdom pyramid. And what's interesting about that is digital media or you know, smartphones are part of that wisdom pyramid. You have to use those tools properly, mm. not get rid of them, but use them efficaciously. One thing you write about when you get into the whole topic of wisdom and the wisdom pyramid itself is that you can't be wise apart from God. And then to quote you, you say, to bypass God in pursuit of wisdom is a fast track to folly. Hmm. The importance of having God as a foundation, the heavens declare the glory of God, the Bible declares the glory of God, that's foundational to everything. Yeah. Yeah, you know, sometimes I get asked about that line and people say things like, so are you saying that like an atheist can never be wise because they don't believe in God, they don't have no relationship with God? And I say, yeah, like I think we can call them brilliant in a knowledge sense, we can call them super smart, but I think wisdom as a category is, you know, it's a biblical category. It's a theological category that it has to have this kind of relationship to God who is wisdom incarnate, right? Who, you know, wisdom was there at the creation of the world, you know, it's the logos, right? The Christ, you know, was the logos before all time. And so, yeah, I think we can't get away from God as the foundation of wisdom. And that's why I structured the wisdom pyramid in the way that I did, which goes from the bottom up, which is the most important, most foundational categories to kind of progressively 
less important, though still valuable. The way that I structured it was with this idea of proximity to God. So, you know, if it's true that God is the source and the standard and the very embodiment of wisdom, then it stands to reason that we gain wisdom in proximity to God. The closest we are to God, both in relationship, but also in kind of where we're drawing from in terms of knowledge, that's where we're going to have the best chance to glean real wisdom. And so, you know, that's why God's word, his direct speech, his direct clear revelation is the foundation of my wisdom pyramid and then the church and then nature, God's creation. And up from there, they become progressively more removed or further away a little bit from like direct proximity to God, the higher up the pyramid you get to the very top, which is, you know, the internet, which is sometimes not even human mediated, it's algorithms, it's robots that are, you know, making decisions about what to show you. So where did the idea of the wisdom pyramid come from? Well, it's, I mean, it's a, now that's a, a real softball question. <laughs> It's a, it's a ripoff of the food pyramid. So if your listeners are familiar with that, hopefully they can kind of understand what I'm going for here. But it started as a conference talk that I was giving a few years ago on the topic of how to be wise in like a fake news world. And I, in the course of preparing to present this talk, it just dawned on me like as a visual aid, it could be cool to like create like a food pyramid type image to help people understand the point that I was going to make in my talk, which is what I just talked about, how structuring our intakes in life around the things of God, around things that are close in proximity to God is a recipe for health and wisdom in the chaos of a post-truth world. And so I kind of drew the wisdom pyramid diagram on like a scratch piece of paper. And I had a graphic designer friend of mine make it like look nice and that was the beginning. I put it on the screen when I gave this talk and people really responded to the image and it kind of went viral ironically on social media later that week. And that was kind of a few years later, I decided to turn it into a book. You're right about the foundational efficacy of scripture. And I've devoted my whole life to memorizing, meditating, and mining the scripture for all its substantial worth. Speak to how people can get beyond just talking about getting into the Word of God and getting the Word of God into them. Because the truth of the matter is, if people aren't reading books in general, it's even more true with respect to Scripture. I find that even pastors don't really read the Scripture. And I think it's more than reading. You know, for example, I was refreshing it in my memory, Matthew chapter 24. And as I go through that, having memorized it, so many details emerge as a rehearse it, yeah. which you would miss if you didn't memorize it. So, you know, it takes some time to memorize, but that gives you an opportunity to really digest the truth of the Word of God. So that three-prong attack of meditation and memorization, in addition to mining the Bible for all its substantial worth, is very significant, particularly in an age in which you can be so distracted and misinformed with respect to the content of Scripture, where you can have, for example, in Georgia, there's going to be a runoff between Warnock and Walker. Walker says the Bible teaches that abortion is wrong. Certainly, Holy Tradition does. And Warnock says, no, 
he can teach the Bible, and that's completely consistent with his view on abortion. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot there in that question, Hank. I mean, I think you're right that it has to go beyond just an acknowledgement that the Bible is crucial, right? Most Christians would agree, right, that the Bible should be the foundation of each of our wisdom pyramids. But in practice, that's a struggle. It's hard to read this ancient book that is far from us culturally as 21st century, you know, in our case, Westerners. It's far from us chronologically. It's a different era completely. So it's difficult to read the Bible. And so not only are we in a culture that is struggling to read contemporary books, but how's that going to work out for Gen Z in terms of reading this ancient Near Eastern text? So I have a couple ideas that I talk about sometimes that I think can be helpful. One of them is like connecting the Bible to other categories of the wisdom pyramid, like beauty. One thing that I do in my own devotional life is listen to music that puts the Bible to music. So there's a lot of great Christian artists out there right now who are making music that is pretty much taking straight scripture and putting it to song. There's a band called Poor Bishop Hooper that just did this three-year project called the Every Psalm Project, where they recorded all 150 psalms, one per week, over 150 weeks. And it's a beautiful project. And sometimes I'll just put that music on in my car when I'm driving. And so I'm not reading the Bible. I'm not opening a book and reading it, but it's coming into my soul and in my heart. And I think that's where we kind of miss that in Bible reading. We think about it as a cerebral exercise. And if I don't understand every word, it's not even worth it. But just hearing the Bible read, just hearing it sung or seeing the Bible acted out, like watching the show like The Chosen, which I happen to be a big fan of this new TV show, The Chosen. That's an example of how the arts and beauty can be a great avenue for something like the Bible to, to grab our hearts in a way that it needs to, right? Scripture has to be for us more than just eat your broccoli. Like it can't just be this thing we know we have to eat for our health, but we don't enjoy it. You know, it's just like, it's this nutritious thing that I don't actually like. That's not going to work. You know, that's not going to sustain you in faithfulness over the long haul. We have to learn to love the Bible. And so beauty, I think, can be a way to do that. The other big thing that I emphasize when I'm talking about this to Gen Z or younger people, but really it applies to all of us, is the importance of community in our scripture reading. I think in an individualistic Western culture like ours, we tend to talk about like personal devotional time as this like hallowed important thing. You know, we, we all just have our me and Jesus time with our Bibles. And that's wonderful, you know, by all means do that. But I think that's kind of an anomaly in church history. You know, if you look at particularly the Near Eastern context in which the Bible, you know, was first written, like the early church processed the Bible communally. It was it was read aloud to the churches. It wasn't just individuals kind of having their personal time. And I think we need to recover that in the contemporary church. Like, how can we make the Bible more of a communal thing? Of course, it starts with going to church and emphasizing, you know, the communal aspect of that. And we can talk about that as the second category of the wisdom pyramid in a minute. But it also could mean like just having a little small group of friends that you read through the Bible each week and discuss it. There's things like 
community Bible study, discipleship, small groups that really emphasize the communal reading of scripture. So I think those are a few ideas, but yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be the big challenge for the church in the digital age going forward is how can we make the Bible central and foundational and desirable for Christians in an age where we don't read, we have short attention spans, we're very individualistic, and we don't have any biblical literacy to even know where to begin with processing what we're being encountered with in scripture. So it's a big challenge, but I think that, you know, we can't just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, you know, the Bible is impossible to read, so I'm just not even going to try. We have to figure out ways to make this sacred text central in our habits and our lives. Yeah, I think those are really wise suggestions. I often say involvement produces commitment. And what you've just communicated is ways that we can get involved. And the more we get involved, the more we become committed to the process. You're also underscoring the fact that church is an embodied experience. And that involves not just the experience of going to church, but the part and parcel of that, which is the communal reading of Scripture. And I think one of the things that the pandemic has done is made it easier and easier for people to see church not as an embodied experience, but something you can do as a rugged individual, something you can do in isolation. Yeah, no, I agree that that's a problem that the pandemic has accelerated. And yeah, it's a huge problem because the embodied nature of the church is not incidental to the value of, it's central to the value of church. Again, to go back to what I was saying earlier about how wisdom involves physical reality, like there is, there is important wisdom to be gleaned in how we are made and what our limits are, what we can and can't do as physical creatures, which includes suffering, sickness. There's wisdom in that, right? There's wisdom in the fact that God created us with limitations, the fact that we're frail, that we can't do everything, we have to sleep. And so the more we lean into our embodiment and everything that that means, I think that we're getting a little bit closer to accessing wisdom. And so, yeah, I can't emphasize enough how much church is not this thing you can do in an app or online. It's something that you have to be physically present for so that you can go through the motions physically of standing with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, shoulder to shoulder, you know, looking to your right and seeing an 80 year old, you know, seasoned saint and looking to your left and seeing a baby and then looking around you and seeing this great spectrum of humanity that are unified in the blood of Christ. Like you don't see that when you're on a live stream, you know, looking at a screen, you don't have this tangible embodiment of the people of God singing together in one voice, praying together, taking communion together, like baptism, all these like physical actions of the church. There's so much meaning loaded in them. And I know that you're agreeing as, you know, being Orthodox even more so probably than I'm articulating, but man, I mean, I think this is like a real present temptation in the digital age is for the church to start to think about the gospel and what we are as just another piece of content that can be shared, you know, on an app or on a website. We are, the church is a categorically other thing than a piece of content that people can consume. It's an experience. It's an embodied experience 
of human beings called forth the ecclesia called out together in this kind of physical structure kind of this image that peter talks about of living stones being built together as this spiritual house that's not just a metaphor that i think we should think about in ethereal terms like you know when we come together as the church we should look at each other and kind of see each person around you as this like physical stone that is here for a reason we are being built together in this organic sort of way by the holy spirit and it's a beautiful thing and i think there's something significant lost when we diminish the importance of that in the embodied experience of church and you know wisdom is cultivated physically sometimes sometimes the truth of the cross and the gospel isn't fully digested until i take communion you know until you have the body and the blood of christ in this physical sense and you consume it there's something about the truth of the gospel that becomes even more true when you do that physical act there's something about like the truth of a certain theology that becomes more real when you sing it as a hymn with the fellow saints in your church you may have understood that theology cerebrally but not until you have this kind of affective emotional embodied experience of singing about it does it fully kind of stick in your heart and that's what the church does that's what the ritual of meeting together habitually going through these intentional liturgies and sacraments it's what it does it makes the truth something beyond just a cerebral idea but this reality that as holistic creatures and we're not just brains on sticks you know we're created to taste and see that the lord is good not just to know that he's good god created us this way for a reason and so to have something like the church that involves all of our senses you know is a beautiful gift because i can theoretically agree that like this person is a brother in christ and this sister is a sister in christ but when i'm at church and i can shake their hand or hug them or hear their voice sing alongside my voice and harmonize with my voice the truth of our fellowship becomes even more real than it does when it's just a concept in my head and that goes for every other aspect of christianity like it becomes more real when it's embodied and so we can't lose that i think something else you speak to and that is the humility with which we address the scripture it is so easy for us to forget that the scriptures have been given to us over time and so often particularly with respect to chronological snobbery we fall into the trap of thinking that we can come up with a unique interpretation of the scripture and i know from my own experience that so often it is efficacious to go back to the wisdom of what you spoke about earlier the wisdom of the fathers to subject my own intellectual prowess whatever that may or may not be mm-hmm. to the wisdom of the ages and i think there's also a sense with respect to humility whereby we approach the scripture recognizing that there are antinomies in scripture that are beyond our ken that we can't figure out you mentioned the eastern tradition that i'm part of now we do live in the land of antinomy you know so there's not this snarling logicality 
this desire to explain and categorize everything. Sometimes you, you know, if someone asks me, you know, how can Christ really be present in the Eucharist? And you throw up your hands and say, I don't know. How can Christ yeah. be one person with two natures? Yeah. How can you come up with a foolproof and satisfying illustration of the Trinity? The Orthodox like to live in the land of antinomy, the land of tension. In the West, there's a snarling logicality. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think just to go off of that, then I'll come back to the humility with tradition and history. But I think you're absolutely right about the antinomy and living intention and paradox. So many heresies have developed over time when someone isn't okay with the tension. And so they're just like, okay, I can't deal with these two things. So I'm just going to go with this side and we'll just call it a day. Well, that's heresy, right? <laughs> when you say that Jesus is all man and I can't have this both and, so I'm just going to go with either or. So wisdom definitely requires a certain degree of mystery and living in the tension. But I would say just as one kind of, you know, caution, when we talk about intellectual humility, I do sometimes see people take that to the extreme of basically, I can't know anything and nothing is ever settled and all of scripture is up for grabs. And I don't think we want to go to that extreme. You know, sometimes you see people who are advocating some novel reading of, you know, scripture, let's say Paul's sexual ethic. And in their defense, they'll say something like, well, I mean, don't we want to have humility before scripture? Like here we are as 21st century people thinking we know exactly what was meant. So we want to be in a place where we can say some things are solid and true and we can take to the bank and they're indisputable but some things are still mysterious in 2000 years of church tradition. And we're still wrestling with this and we don't quite know what to make of it. Now, this is where church tradition as a source of wisdom is super important, right? Because on things like sexual ethics, for example, we talk, we've talked about transgenderism and how it's such a new idea in the last 10 years. And we have to be real about the fact that church tradition on this issue has been univocal in what it believes for 2010 years of the last 2020 year you know <laughs> like there's been no dispute it has never been accepted to have views of marriage as anything other than a man and a woman until very very recently so it's the height of chronological snobbery and pride to suggest that in the last 10 years we finally arrived at the truth of a biblical kind of sexual ethic and everyone before us was wrong. That is suspicious to me, right? I'm always suspicious when a new perspective comes along that is novel in 2000 years of Christian history and theology. Now, does that mean that there can never be an instance where we discover something that, you know, sheds new light on a theological idea? I don't want to say that. I think it's possible, but nine times out of 10 or even more, the person who declares something new that's radically different than what the church has taught throughout its history, it's that person that you need to be suspicious of, right? Yeah, I often say just because it's new doesn't mean it's not true, but you ought yeah. to examine it carefully. Yeah, and we should give a fair hearing to every new perspective and listen to what their argument is. But ultimately, if I'm going to look at the argument of one 21st century Western intellectual and all of the Christian saints of yesteryear, <laughs> I'm going to go with that, you know, probably. So one of the things I say in the book is the test of time 
is a real test. It's a good source of vetting the truth of things, time. You know, the longer something, let's say a book, the longer a book is kind of around in history and still being read and still being useful, that tends to be a good test of the truth that it contains. If people are still finding, you know, Plato to be useful and helpful, then that's a good book to read. So this is why the great books, you know, are so important as a foundational source of education, because these are books that have lasted over the course of centuries, and they haven't fizzled out in their usefulness as humanity's various eras have moved on. So, you know, not to say that you should never read a book that was written this year, but you should take that current book with a little bit more grain of salt because it hasn't been tested by the test of time. This is what C.S. Lewis writes about in his preface to Athanasius on the Incarnation. He has this great little preface where he talks about the value of reading old books. And he talks about this very idea of they have stood the test of time. And that's a valid test. You know, there are so many other things I want to get into. Three more quick things about the church that I found profound in your book. One is the emphasis on the annual rhythm of the church calendar. And that's something that I have experienced the rhythm of the church calendar. That might be a foreign phrase, but there's a profundity to that. Yeah, you know, I think the way we orient our time matters. Like when we live our lives around a consumer calendar, for instance, where things like Black Friday, Cyber Monday, when those are kind of the key dates that order our lives and order our dates, it reveals the kind of where our heart lies, where our passions lie. But when you order your time and you live your annual year around God's story and his birth and, you know, his death and resurrection and ascension and so forth, that reveals where your heart lies. You are in God's story. Your very time that you are living in is God's story versus some sort of consumer story. So I think it's hugely important things like the structure of our time. Two other things that you mentioned, one is consumeristic Christianity, where you have a Christianity that's long on looks but dreadfully short on substance, where people are invited to the master's table, not for the love of the master, but because of what is on the master's table. So Christ becomes a means to an end, as opposed to what you communicated earlier, Christ is is the end. God is the architect of wisdom. God is wisdom. And we can't find that apart from God. It's really, again, the inversion of the pyramid. Yeah, I mean, this relates to what I was saying a little bit about how we can't turn Christianity into just another piece of content. And we're just playing into consumerism and essentially saying, like, you know, the church and God and the Bible, they're just another thing, you know, that you can add to the mix of your intakes, Netflix, you know, websites that you visit. Oh, and then Christianity, like each of them offers you a little bit, you know, to help you through your stressful life. Christianity is categorically other than those things. And it's because what you're saying, it's a relationship with the living God. It's not just content about the living God. It's a relationship. There's a presence. There's a reality to the person of God And so we can't detach the content of theology and the Bible from the person of God. This is why throughout the book, I talk a lot about 
how wisdom involves our loves and our hearts. And it's not just a cerebral experience. It's you don't become wise by just cramming your brain full of as many books as you can read, as many articles, podcasts. You become wise by falling more and more in love with the living God. And to the extent that reading a book does that or listening to a podcast inflames your heart in the direction of loving God, then that's great. That's what produces wisdom in us. And so in different categories of the wisdom pyramid, like nature, for example, or beauty, for me, those categories of wisdom are more significant for the way that they tune my heart in kind of the key of, you know, worshiping God and and longing for the creator. When I go outside and look at the avocado tree in my backyard, or, you know, just the beauty of the ocean, which is just down the street here in Southern California, like, I can't help but worship the creator for the rhythm of waves and the kind of the life-giving nature of the seasons and fruit on my avocado tree that is in the various stages of development. Like nature is a huge, valuable source of wisdom if it stirs our affections to love God. And that's why, you know, science as a discipline, which is nothing if not studying nature, studying God's creation. It's why like in most of Christian history, science was viewed as totally consonant with the life of devotion and with theology, because you were reading the second book, you know, you were learning about God by studying the book of creation alongside, you know, the Bible. And so you have scientists like Isaac Newton and so forth, who saw in the study of nature an opportunity to grow in the love of God. And so it's a shame that we've now come to this place where science and faith are kind of viewed as enemies, because I think, you know, I was in Alaska a few weeks ago speaking at a conference and I saw the Northern Lights for the first time, the Aurora Borealis. And like, you can't look at the Aurora Borealis and have any other thought than, wow, like this is the master, you know, at work in creating unfathomable mystery and beauty in the skies. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And the same is true of man-created beauty, which is the arts. You know, I'm a big fan of the arts. That's what I spend a lot of my time writing about as a journalist, movies and music and so forth. And I think there's so much in that category that can be good for our wisdom to the extent that it helps us love God more and draws us into that proximity with God so that we can become wise. So don't discount your affections in the process of cultivating wisdom. It's not just cerebral. It's about your heart and your loves. And so you can become wise by listening to Bach. You know, (laughs) if all you ever do is sit down in your living room and listen to Bach, you will become more wise, I think. You know, it's so interesting. When I was reading through your book, you know, going back to the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, or God's eternal power, divine nature, clearly seen through what has been made so that men are without excuse. But when I was reading this in your book, in the chapter on nature, I wrote down this quote by Albert Einstein, who saw himself as a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many different languages. The child knows someone must have written those books. It does not know how. It does not understand the languages in which they are written. The child dimly suspects 
a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books, but doesn't know what it is. That, said Einstein, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. Now, Einstein rejected the personal God of the Bible, but he saw that design presupposes a designer. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's interesting to kind of see the scientific community and the more that is being discovered about the size of the universe and the complexity and the finely tuned nature of the universe. There's more and more skepticism about, you know, things like Darwinism and just kind of secular explanations. And yet there's still this reluctance to say that it was God, but the design of things is more and more I think it's a little bit unsettling for the secular scientific establishment, because the more the science discovers about the universe, the more it's clear that this is even more ingeniously designed than we ever thought. And that's both in the kind of space level of like bigness and it's in the this micro level of like the body and like the deeper down you go into like the micro levels of DNA and, you know, the smallest elements of the human body are miraculously designed and it's crazy. So, you know, this is why nature for me is so foundational in the wisdom pyramid. Like I have hopes that the science and faith division can, you know, for the next generation can kind of bridge it again. And we can have more and more orthodox in the lowercase O Christians who mere Christians who are in the sciences, because I think there's a lot of beautiful kind of harmony that can come when we read the two books together, right? You know, the book of scripture and the book of creation. So, Yeah, I want to go on with that, but I, I do want to get back to the church. One of the things you write about poignantly in the book is identifying with your local community. The intention being that perhaps you shouldn't live a long ways away from your church. Perhaps you should be concerned about the people in the periphery of your neighborhood. The idea of localism, we sometimes want to solve problems on the other side of the globe when there are problems staring us in the face every single day. I thought that was a very significant part of your book. Mm. Yeah, I think part of the foolishness of our age is that we're all being drawn out of the local more and more, right? Whether it's the news and, you know, we're more interested in the national news and we're more aware of like national political debates than we are about local issues. You know, with this last election, I guarantee that if you ask the average voter, you know, tell me about what you're voting for on this election, they would know more about the bigger picture kind of statewide or, you know, if we're in a presidential year, they would have a stronger opinion about the presidential candidates and they might not know anything about the local school board election or the local ballot initiatives. And I think that's a problem because, you know, it, this connects with the whole embodiment idea. The fact is we are created as embodied creatures who live in a place, a physical place. And God created humans to cultivate the earth in the place that they are, to bring order as it were, out of the chaos, wherever they are found. Our vocation is not to be aware of the chaos on the other side of the world that we can't do anything about. Our vocation is let's survey the chaos in our immediate sphere 
of influence, which starts with the, your own family, oftentimes, are you bringing order there? And then are you bringing order in your local neighborhood and your local city? So yeah, localism is a huge value for me. I think it's a lost value in the digital age. The internet just disciples us in a direction away from localism. And I think the church needs to recover that because the local church is where individual Christians are formed and developed is in community with real people that you can know and be known by that you can pop over to their house, you know, and, you know, have a conversation and bring food over, you know, if someone is in need, it's hard to disciple one another. It's hard to grow alongside other people when you're far physically from one another. So, yeah, I mean, in my book, Uncomfortable, which is all about the local church, I think I say something like, you know, when you're picking a church to attend, basically throw a stone at the nearest non-heretical church and go there, you know, the local matters. And I think that driving an hour away to your church is a weird thing to do and not advisable. I want to get back to what you're talking about with respect to nature. One of the points you make in your book is that urban living is literally changing our brains, rewiring our brains. We live in a concrete jungle, and as a result of that, we oftentimes cannot appreciate nature. It's so interesting. At the same time I was reading your book, I was reading a book titled Where the Crawdads Sing, very, very popular book. And one of the themes of that book is nature. It's very interesting. The author is a materialist, sort of a person that has the worldview that the physical facts fix all the facts. But yet, the beauty with which she describes nature, the intricacies of nature, stunning. There were times when I was reading that book that I actually had tears in my eyes. But this point of urban living desensitizing us to the beauty of God's book of nature. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is a very real thing for me because I live in dense Southern California where it's like city for as far as you can see. And I feel it like I feel my soul lacking something. And so anytime we get the chance to like go a little bit out of town to a state park or the beach or something like we seize that opportunity because there's just something there's something about being in nature and being encountered with nature in its pure form that we need, right? There's like a magnetic pull to that. And I think it's because it reminds us that we are creatures. We are part of this creation. We are not the creator. And when you live in a, an urban environment where everything is climate controlled and you can kind of exert your will on nature to some degree, you're not confronted with the fact that you are a creature you start to have these delusions of being the creator and that's where foolishness arises. You know, I think it's interesting that cities, and I don't want to go too far down this trajectory because it's not true in every sense, but you know, cities in the Bible oftentimes have connotations of evil and kind of being against God, you know, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah or Babel. And even to this day, cities are, they tend to be more secular you know, more anti-God in their character, not always, whereas rural environments that are a little bit more in tune with nature and the cycles of nature, maybe have, it's a bit easier to kind of be religious and to acknowledge God. 
I think there's just something there to observe, right? Like the more you're in an environment where nature is kept out of view and you're not confronted with the limitations of being a creature in creation, I think the more you can live without God. Why do I need God? Like I'm my own God in this urban kind of oasis of man's kind of apotheosis of man's creation. Whereas if you're a farmer in North Dakota, you are very much aware of your limitations as the creature because you are totally reliant on the weather and God's prerogative when it comes to the weather and the seasons and the cycles and the design of nature and farming and whatnot. So if we live in an environment, you know, whether it's we're talking about cities and urban environments or just digital environments where we're looking at screens all day, right? You could live in farmland of America in the middle of Iowa, and you could still have this problem if you're spending all day, every day looking at screens and not going outside, you know? So I don't want to suggest that only people in cities are falling into this trap. It's happening all over the world through technology. The point is whatever we're doing to distance ourselves from God's creation in nature, the worse off it is, I think, for our groundedness in the structure and the design of reality. One of the sections of your book, chapter seven, has to do with books. And I actually wrote in the margin of your book, the reason Brett is so interesting is he reads so many books. Hmm. And I think that that's not just a compliment. I mean, I think you fit the mission statement of our podcast. I think you're interesting. I think you're informative. I think you're inspirational. But a lot of that comes as a direct result of the fact that you read. You're disciplined to read. And I want you to expand on that because it does promote discipline. It enlarges your vocabulary. It enhances your memory, your creativity, your ability to reason. It has so many byproducts. So I want you to do a pitch, mm-hmm. as your book does, on the importance of reading. Mm. Oh, wow. I mean, there's so much I could say about it. I grew up, first of all, with a father who was a huge reader. And I it's one of the traits about him that I'm so thankful for because I grew up seeing a stack of books always on his nightstand. And every time I saw him with free time, he was sitting there reading books. And so I think this is a generational thing that we really have to model for our kids. If we want our kids to have any chance of being good readers, you know, they need to see us reading and we need to read books to them. You know, I have three little kids under the age of four. So they're not quite that age where I can like, read Narnia to them for the first time. But I can't wait for that day because I want them to have the experience of the magic of reading. And, you know, one of the great things about reading books is just how transporting they are. You know, you could be a little middle-class kid in suburban Kansas City, which is what I was growing up. And you could be reading books about, you know, pirates in the Caribbean or, you know, historical characters in Europe or throughout the world. And so there's a real sense of like visiting other eras and other places and gaining a broader view of God's great, majestic, diverse world through books. You know, you don't have to have a huge bank account that affords you the luxury of traveling the world to experience the world. You know, books and and narratives like that can do that. There's a book by the novelist Marilyn Robinson called When I Was a Child, I Read Books. And she has a beautiful little essay in that book where she talks about being kind of 
you know, a little girl in the Midwest growing up and how books were her friends. Like she looked at her bookshelf and it represented her community, you know, whether it was Huckleberry Finn or some other characters she was reading, like this was her community. And so reading books, it can connect you with other people in a communal sense. It can develop empathy, you know, for other perspectives that you might not have access to in your particular context. And it can just broaden your world and develop curiosity to keep exploring that world. Uh, And maybe that's the biggest thing I would say is the muscle of curiosity is so essential in the life of uh, wisdom. If we have no appetite for learning and for growing and and kind of developing in all these ways in our wisdom, then we're not going to do it. So whether it's books or beauty or nature, like things that just stir our hearts to like want to explore more, to go further up and further in, in this grand expanse of God's world, that's good for our wisdom, you know? So whatever it is for you, whether it's, you know, reading the Hardy Boys, which I read those books voraciously as a kid. Nancy Drew uh, probably as well. Nancy Drew, like <laughs> Berenstein Bears. Like it doesn't really matter what it is. Honestly, I don't want to be like a snob and say like, you only need to be reading the great books, you know, it really just read what you love, like read the books that give you that transporting kind of experience of being taken to another world, being exposed to a different perspective and just enjoying the beauty of narrative and the creativity of man, you know? You know, you're also connecting with great minds. So, for example, I can read St. John Chrysostom, a great series of sermons in a Mm -hmm. book. It's titled On Wealth and Poverty. But you're reading that book, and you're connecting with a great mind. And that mind was very much alive when he was writing that book. So you have that opportunity of connecting with somebody that is brilliant. And the examples that you give, I mean, you've talked about C.S. Lewis, but some of the great scientists like Johannes Kepler, who faithfully read the Bible, he voraciously consumed a wide variety of books, and he resolutely fixed his substantial talents on the book of nature because he said through it, God spoke to him as a father to a child. Mm. And also something that you talk about in your book, books, you say, give us perspective, focus, and space to reflect. I mean, that last clause, space to reflect. And we've already talked about this, so maybe it doesn't bear elaboration, but I think it's so important that when you read, you can reflect. And you have that space where with digital media, oftentimes you don't, or at least you don't allow yourself that space because of the immediacy and the rapid pace. Yeah, I think that's a really good word. And, you know, I find myself tempted when I'm reading books to move on too quickly because there are way too many books out there that I want to read and are on my to read list. I'm sure you are the same way, Hank. Like there are so many good books always. And sometimes I'm like so eager to get through my Amazon to read list that I don't sufficiently take time to like sit with a book. And so that's a habit that I'm trying to work on in my own life. But, you know, it's just in our whole digital world, that's going to be a struggle for us. Like, because we are so inundated with content, you know, in every media form, whether it's physical books or Kindle books or podcasts or movies or TV shows or articles, there's just so much of it 
And again, a lot of it is really good content that contains a lot of truth and nourishment. But if we're not taking time to let each individual thing that we consume actually like process a bit, and even to the point where we think critically about it and evaluate it, and you know, we can do that while we're rereading too. Like you can kind of evaluate and write things in the margins. And I do that, but I do think there's something about not moving on too quickly so that the nourishment, whatever nourishment you got from reading that book, isn't just kind of like in one and, you know, out the other instantly, like we've got to, got to take time to synthesize. You quote C.S. Lewis, who said, read one old book for every three new books. And actually that was challenging to me because I was thinking when I read that, do I do that actually? What about the classics? And I, as a result of that, I went to the library and I got some of the classics and I thought, you know, for every three books, because I get so many books sent in to me and I'm always reading a new book. And sometimes that crowds out the classics, but the classics are so transcendently important. Yeah. I think it's, it's a brilliant suggestion from Lewis. And I think if we all attempted to do that, you know, maybe we can't do as well as one for every three, but one for every five, whatever you can do, I think it's a good habit. But you also say that if you read only challenging books, it's the intellectual equivalent of eating only organic greens. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole, like, we can't look at the Bible as broccoli idea. Like if we're seeing the development of wisdom as a chore that is kind of soul crushing over time, that's not going to be good for us. So we need to have our hearts and our loves need to matter. And so choose, choose books that, that actually give you life and, and stir your affections in, in positive ways, not just books that feel like um, homework. Part of your pyramid includes beauty. And you talk about how beauty silences us. And it's so necessary to be silenced in a noisy age. Maybe you can speak to the synergy of silence and beauty. Yeah. In the book, I connect this to Sabbath and just the theology Ah. of the Sabbath. And, you know, God had, he had a a design in mind when he instituted the Sabbath, right? Because it's connected to this idea of by our human nature, I think we want to just constantly be productive and just filling every gap with something. So to actually like force ourselves to kind of take a break and to be still, it's everything that we've been describing today when we've been talking about the need for silence and the need for contemplation and the need for rest to be reminded of our limitations. And we're not just these hyper-productive robots that can just consume, consume, consume. Like we need to have space to synthesize. We need to have space to let something powerful have its full effect on us. And so, yeah, I think the arts and beauty, they necessarily force us to slow down because so often art is just too complex to kind of understand it in the moment. You have to like sit with a painting at a museum for a little bit to fully grasp its meaning, you know, and literally when you're going to like a concert, you have to kind of sit still for a couple hours. That is a revolutionary thing in today's busybody age, like just sitting silently for a couple hours, whether it's listening to music or watching a movie that's increasingly becoming a radical act. Who would have thought, you know, 50 years ago that like going to the movie theater and sitting in the dark for two plus hours and giving your full attention to this experience of beauty and art, that that is a radical thing, but it is because 
we live in this world where we can't go two seconds without pulling out our phone and like scrolling. And so I think the arts, you know, need to be a part of our habits and our wisdom diet because they do force us to slow down a bit and they train our muscles of silence and contemplation. Well, you just picked up your smartphone, so that leads me to chapter mm-hmm. nine of your book, The Internet and Social Media. And maybe we can cut right to the chase, but you give five habits for cultivating wisdom online. The first being go with a purpose, don't just surf. Yeah, that this connects to what we were talking about with the intentionality idea and how vulnerable we are online if we are not intentional we are just going to be at the mercy of the algorithm you know whatever lady folly is calling out to us to click on like click on this watch this read this you know that we're going to totally be susceptible to that if we don't go online with a purpose so one of the key habits i think for christian discipleship in the internet age is just trying as much as we can to only use our devices when we have a specific thing in mind to do. Now, there's a lot of things that we could be doing. You know, I have to go on my phone to call an Uber. I have to go on my phone to order something on Amazon. I have to go on my computer to check my email. So there are a lot of reasons to use these technologies that are great. But I think that the point is try to minimize the moments where you're just kind of like, I have nothing to do right now. So I'm just going to pull up my phone and just start randomly scrolling. I think that's where we get into trouble. And that's where we kind of condition ourselves to fill every moment of our lives with content. When we're walking from one part of the house to the other, and we we pull out our phone and do something, anything, like check your notifications, like that's where we're eliminating every square inch of our lives of free space, you know, and that's troublesome for our wisdom. And we can't process. I mean, so often I, if I'm going to write something and I'm thinking about it, how am I going to present this? Oftentimes when I'm sleeping, that thought is going through my mind and somehow or other the problem solved in the morning, I can write exactly what I want and exactly the structure I want to write it in. So I've given myself the time to process. And one of the things you talk about with respect to a habit for cultivating wisdom online is quality over quantity, digital minimalism. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, and this could go for any of the things that we've talked about, like books, for example, like rather than trying to read 100 books a year, you know, if you read 20 really good books, you know, then that's probably better for you than 100 mediocre books. The same is true of our internet behavior. If we can focus our attention only on a couple really useful things, rather than going kind of a mile wide and inch deep with a ton of content, then that's going to be a better habit to develop. So I recommend, you know, when it comes to like internet articles, for example, like your posture could be, I'm just going to go to my Facebook feed and just click on everything that looks interesting to me. Well, then you're probably going to spend a fair amount of time reading some pretty like mediocre stuff that doesn't add any value to your life. But if your posture is, I'm not going to read anything until like at least three trusted people in my life recommend that I read it. (laughs) Then, you know, if you allocate your attention in that way, you're probably more likely to be spending your time on valuable things. So I personally put a lot of weight in like, who is recommending this thing to me? If I see some random person on Twitter say like, 
this is a must read article. I'm not going to click on it, but if I see like 10 people who I trust all saying the same thing, like this is a really valuable insight, you should read this, then that's what I mean by quality over quantity. You know, your attention is a precious commodity and we need to be more discerning about how we allocate our attention. You say to slow down, to diversify exposure. And then your fifth point is to share what's good. In other words, to take what you've learned and bless someone else with what you've learned. Yeah, this is one of the true gifts of the internet and even social media is it's just made it really easy to share things with one another. You know, I work for an internet ministry. You know, you are in this industry. You're sharing content through the technological means that we didn't have 30 years ago. So insofar as technology makes it easier for us to share edifying content with as many people as possible across the world, then it can be a valuable thing. So one thing that I recommend in terms of our personal habits of social media, instead of using social media to kind of share your strong opinion about everything and just kind of vent about politics or whatever, which is how a lot of people use social media. What if we as Christians viewed the platform of social media as a place where we can share what's good, you know, whether it's like a a really insightful article about the Bible or some beautiful documentary about nature that points people to God's creation. So there's ways that you can use that upper part of the wisdom pyramid to point people to the lower parts. That's where I think it can be a, a really useful thing. I think your book ends in a powerful way, not with a whimper, but Mm -hmm. with the real bang, the last chapter, what wisdom looks like. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it didn't fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain comes down, the streams rise, the winds blow and beat against that house, and it falls with a great crash. So the point is wisdom is the application of knowledge, and you give three marks of wisdom being discernment, patience, and humility. Yeah, so I ended the book that way because those three characteristics kind of answer the three problems that I talk about in the first half of the book, which is too much information, too fast information, the speed of information, and then the too focused on me orientation of information. So, you know, discernment answers the too much information. Like to be wise, in today's world is to have the discernment to sort through the glut of too much information and to actually like know intuitively what is true and what is false amidst this glut. In the too fast speed of our day and age, patience is the virtue that, you know, is a mark of wisdom. Those who are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, who don't just kind of jump on the bandwagon on some viral social media post who aren't just kind of constantly sounding off on social media, whatever jumps into their mind immediately. That's the mark of a wise person is is patience, going a little bit slower, being a little bit more methodical to contemplate things, to synthesize, to evaluate, you know, before chiming in to the discourse. And then the third one is humility. And that, you know, when I think about the wisest people I know, 
I don't think about the people with triple PhDs and high IQs. I think about the people who may be brilliant, but are humble and they're lifelong learners. They recognize that they are not the best measure of truth or wisdom. They have to always be looking to the source of wisdom. They're always in pursuit of God and wanting to grow in proximity to him. And they're aware of their limitations. They're aware of what they don't know. And they embrace the mysteries and the paradoxes. And I think that if we cultivate those virtues of discernment, humility, patience, we'll be radically different in our culture and we'll offer something to our weary world that is hopeful and something that is a little more solid, that's a little closer to that image of the house built on the solid foundation. I just looked at the clock and I I noticed that we spent 100 minutes together so far and (laughs) you have really lived up to the mission statement of this podcast. Interesting, informative, inspirational, and a great example of someone who has expanded your horizons and your base of knowledge as a result of reading. Well, thanks, Hank. It's been such a fun conversation. I'm sure we could go even another hundred minutes talking about all of this. That's the thing about this book is it's like the wisdom pyramid is kind of like, it contains everything, right? So you, you could talk all day just about one category of wisdom, whether it's nature or the church or beauty. And so it's a fun book to talk about because it takes us in so many different directions. But yeah, I appreciate the conversation. Well, thank you again. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in to this edition of the Hank Unplugged podcast. This again is a podcast that is exposing you to people that expand your horizons. And I think reading the book, The Wisdom Pyramid, will do just that. You can get a copy of The Wisdom Pyramid on the web at equip.org. You can also get it by writing me at Post Office Box 8500, Charlotte, North Carolina, zip code 28271. And once again, thanks for tuning in. Look forward to seeing you next time with more of the Hank Unplugged podcast. So on for now.